You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Knife here with always typical Lydia today's show we're going to be doing the 1997 classic wishmaster rumbly voice I wouldn't say it's really a classic Josh you shut your mouth well not everything's a classic (laughs) it is to me damn it it is. It is a West classic. It, it is, is a West classic. This oh. has so many West tropes, if you will. It really does. Mm-hmm. It really does. I really wanted to do this one, and I thought that since we were in the realm of ridiculousness with Leprechaun, Lydia could maybe... I mean, whatever. You wouldn't say no if I really wanted to do it, but I. Th- it was an easier fit. I don't want to do something super serious and then say, let's do Wishmaster. The most serious wish-based horror movie ever. You know, it's got it's got things that I like too. You know, like it's got three of my most favorite things out of out of film. Oh, what is it? A Barney Rubble. Gotcha. A Linda Hamilton. <laughs> Jack. And an otherworldly stoic. Oh. Yeah. The. It does have those elements in it. Um, I, I feel like when I'm I'm talking about Wishmaster, uh, there's almost a little bit of self-consciousness in it because I was so fucking into this movie. Like, so into this movie. The, the Something about me being around 13, 14 years old when I saw this, and this was 100% what got me into this idea of uh, being obsessed with, like, evil, magical characters. This really was the movie. This movie made me very aware of the possibility of much darker folklore um, and also monkey paw wishes and also um, how to do a really chatty villain and without putting too many yucks in it. I mean, he jokes a little bit, but for the most part, he, he is just, you pointed it out, we were watching, and he just, like, kind of talks nonstop, right? He does. Um, although a lot of the jokes would be, and they are way funnier to an adult. Yeah. At 13 years old, he is that otherworldly stoic. And there's otherworldly stoics that appeal to adults, like Pinhead comes to mind, is yeah. number one. Yeah. Um, and even Spawn, even though it's in the realm of comic books, and they mm-hmm. sort of straddle that line of, of being comical and being very stoic. I can't mm-hmm. think of a better word for it. Yeah. Um, they do, you know, they hit that with Candyman, where it's all adult, no funny. There's nothing funny in fucking Candyman. Yeah. But with this guy, he does really edge on comedy, mm-hmm. but it's really only caught by an adult mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It really, really is. I think... Uh, this was a film that I had watched over and over again on the movie network. In Canada, we have this little cable package, and it watches movies uncut and commercial-free, and this movie would have premiered, for me, on that station. And the thing about that station is, like any other televised programming, or like HBO back in the 90s, it just fucking repeats these movies. And I watched this movie every single time I caught it. Not always from the beginning, or I would check clips, etc. But I really tried to watch it as much as possible and i don't 
really know and, and I would just be like, Oh, I wish I could grant evil wishes to people. I just wanted to fuck with people in that way. You know, when you're you're a teenager and you're particularly emo and you have all this sort of uh, unfocused rage and, and annoyance at the world because you have no power and no control over anything. Yet. I'm 42 and I feel like that. I don't want to talk about teenager. When I was about the same age, though, I had the same reaction to scanners. Yeah. yeah. I definitely <laughs> wanted to blow people's heads up. Oh, yeah. And there's definitely a, a, a moment. When you said scanners, I thought, yes, absolutely. How many times have we been in a fucking conversation with somebody and we just wanted, we were just sitting back and you got this weird look on your face and you're just imagining Imagining their head fucking explode, <laughs> glasses going flying and shit. And then you start to look a little worried because, like, what if they're a scanner too? Yeah, well, yeah. I <laughs> don't want some dual scanner stuff with me. But like so many things from my childhood, this movie went away for me. I stopped thinking about it as much, and uh, even though it has crept into my writing, really, truly crept into my writing, there's a demonic force uh, in the Teresa comic book that is um, not the main villain, but it is a presence that will be throughout the entire run, and I can't fucking help the fact that it's like, Jesus Christ, it is definitely... It's not the same character, but there are so many similarities to what the character is uh, that I'm just like, yeah, I can't... I, I Fuck, man, there it is. There's nothing large. new under the sun. When was the last time you watched this? Uh, it would have been probably over 10 years ago. Wow, okay. So, uh, and, and I think it was actually... I started watching it from the beginning... And I was watching the 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 sequence, uh, the pre-credit sequence, essentially his origin story. Mm-hmm. And I think I got to in and about where Ted Remy eats it, mm-hmm. and then I got distracted by something else, and I turned off the PlayStation, whatever I was watching it on, and I was like, oh, I'm going to get back to this in a bit. And then I just never got back to it. And then you know, a couple of days later, you're like, oh, Wishmaster's still in the the system. Put it on the shelf and then you just don't get back to it and then as you know as it is right even a movie that you love a lot you might not necessarily go back to it and i was going to pre-watch this before we did the episode but i was a little worried because i was a little worried about what if it's what if it's way shittier than I remember? Like, way shittier. <laughs> I'd have to guess that it's way better than you even remembered. Yeah, I, I, I especially the, the towards the end, I was I was thinking, I was like, no wonder I fucking liked this movie so much. And <laughs> even the opening sequence with all of the, the special effects and that are going And a skeleton on. popped out. Oh, my God. What the fuck? <laughs> oh, my God. It was so fucking fun. And when we're looking at this now as, as horror aficionados that you know, I am and you definitely are um the names the fucking cameos but not like everything from the score to to like fucking who's producing this fucking film to uh, everything right there's all these familiar names when there is a jump scare phone ring sequence and then they have the violin hit I'm like, fuck, really? But then I remembered, oh, yeah, it's a hairy man from Doing Thing. I'm supposed to be like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I sort of was both. It really is. Um, when you're looking at this, and I can't say for certain the intention about creating this movie, but I definitely felt as though they were really trying to create a thing that would become a franchise or something. That, or 
or or just going for broke. Let's put every let's get everyone together and do a fucking horror movie. We're gonna get we're gonna get Kane Hodder. We're gonna get Tony Todd. We're gonna get Robert England to to play parts in this fucking movie. You know, like and and we're gonna like try to make a, a a character that people can gravitate towards it strikes me that it was to be a standalone project uh, but i'm also from that point of view of uh old hate 80s horror boom kid where everything was a standalone project yeah, everything Everyone was just grappling for series and no one was grappling for remakes where that's what people tend to do nowadays mm-hmm, yeah for sure um unfortunately because there's something to be said for a standalone horror and I really think that this could have lived with that somewhat ambiguous ending because it's mm-hmm. really not. It really has wrapped up. Mm-hmm. He's laughing at the end. He's not saying like, "I'll see you next time." Yeah, true. There's no like kid finding a, a glove in the sand. You know, <laughs> there's no unearthing a fucking hockey mask. There's no mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. none of that. There's no pop up at the end. Mm-hmm. True. True. You're absolutely right. Um, for me, uh, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad you indulged me. I'm glad you wanted to sit through this one and, uh, you enjoyed it. Yeah. Oh yeah, I sure did. The roster, uh, is enjoyable. I, I like the gin as well because yeah, it definitely speaks to a lot of things that I enjoyed as a, as a kid as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I let you read a, a weird little short story that had yeah. to do with the Loch Ness monster. And that was one of my childhood fascinations so mm-hmm. it's those childhood fascinations that stick that's why i had to ask like how long had it been since you watched wishmaster because if it was something that you watched like every five years of course it sticks and works its way into your current comic writing but a 10-year gap something that sort of fell off mm-hmm. even for 10 years previous yeah from when this movie was running on the movie network i was there for it and then i would i even had one of my early screen names on the internet was wishmaster wow yeah wow. Uh, yeah <laughs> well he is a, a very impressionable thing like oh my god he is like i said one of those stoic otherworldly stoic mm-hmm. I, I love a good otherworldly stoic i don't know if there's another term for them in academia but that's what i would think of them as my favorites like pinhead yes. and spawn Yes. And the tall man. Mm-hmm. And Candyman, of course. Yes. And we got some Tony Todd going on mm-hmm. here. I don't know if there's anyone from Spawn involved in this. Like, I don't know if Nicotero did any work on Spawn. I don't know. I really or don't know. anyone from k They might have because the effects, you know, there's a little bit of parallels. Um, you got Angus Scrim reading the narration at the very beginning. So you mm-hmm. got my pal, the tall man. And I don't know if there's anyone Hellraiser-y involved in this. You, you almost would want... A, like a Doug Bradley cameo. Yeah. Especially, just for a moment. Just for a moment. Especially since when, d- towards the end of this film, I was re- I was like, oh my God, like I forgot. There's a lot of Hellraiser-y, when they're in the gemstone, when, when they're in, within the Jin's world. Yeah. And you have people flayed and you have a monster stalking the hallways. I mean, what does that remind you of? Yeah. <laughs> it's very, very Hellraiser. Yeah. It seems well, very, very much. Well, he's sitting on this fucking brilliant throne and just pontificating. Like, <laughs> and then you got alleyway scenes that are very spawn-like. Yes. And that street life, street level. Mm-hmm. And it's the interactions between somebody very monstrous and um, someone who's street involved. Like, I really enjoyed that, and it, again, running a spawn, let alone just the Wishmaster character himself. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a little, a little nod. There's, if you want to go 
for like threads between films aside from rubber monsters and stuff uh, we had Vern Troyer <laughs> you want to talk little people Vern Troyer was in this for crying out loud yeah the little that's, tiny bit part yeah that's crazy but very memorable part too yeah yeah I love that baby gin version of himself like it's really 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 cool and again reminds me of a lot of the birth of Frank in Hellraiser mm-hmm. very very mm-hmm. similar oh yeah especially when we're dealing with uh, arms extending and spinal columns running down a body and and all that kind of stuff it, it really is just uh, and I had what I had really forgotten was how incredibly diverse these special effects were like they're everything everything under the sun mm-hmm. you could possibly imagine because of the fact that you're dealing with a character that's straight up magical and and when we're in that final party scene just anything everything's happening yeah it's so fucking cool they did have a little bit of a fixation on uh computer graphic effects but maybe we'll get in into that yeah i mean i have nothing for um uh, post-mortem today i'm awfully tired i'm experiencing eye strain for the first time mm-hmm. in my life and i'm just exhausted and can hardly see straight so i haven't done a lot of like thinking or research Mm -hmm. although i do keep thinking about the beloved episode and thinking more on when danny glover cups oprah winfrey's breasts i don't know why i keep thinking about that and thinking like (laughs) was that like a a a real dude move on his part is Wes right to be fully creeped out and a little offended on her behalf i liked your explanation if you guys have it too <laughs> if you guys didn't like or if you guys didn't listen to our beloved episode there there is a moment in which danny glover's character paul d grabs oprah winfrey's breasts um after she had told this uh horrific story about getting raped and then uh, having her uh milk drank while it was happening it's just a horrible story but then he kind of goes over behind her slips the hands up into a boob grab and i i suppose the the thing that was really it's it, yes yeah, she just told this harrowing tale that is just would get, obviously this woman has been scarred for life but also he hasn't really made any move on her this is his opening move yeah and at this point he hadn't no yeah and and listen i i have made some some bold moves in my time that is a lie i have not i ha- but i i definitely uh in your dreams in my bold. dreams i I've, I've done the hand on the 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 leg done the hand on the leg that's kind of like saying hmm uh, maybe what do you think but grabbing boob right away but your explanation of of something that she almost is shamed of and of course kissing the scars on her back and 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 accepting all of her you are holy beautiful and all that is woman to me and and it does not matter what has happened to your past you this has created you and this is a woman that i am very much into and, and just fully acceptance yeah and then i started thinking now could this be translated as a, a move of ownership it could be. I mean, I, I think that in, in a sequence like that, it is really open to the interpretation of if you are a type of person that thinks that when somebody reveals something vulnerable about themselves, your job is to sit there and listen and sympathize. Uh, and and uh, then, no, what, his action is not appropriate. If you're the type of person that thinks that in, in, in a situation like this, it was a bold yet um sincere uh tender gesture 
than it's acceptable. I mean, it really, I would not try to put my personal politics on somebody to try mm-hmm. to interpret this scene. I, I initially went to it as like, ugh, like that's the, the dirty pool, man. Like just, you can make a move on her later. No, but like, yeah, but maybe, my, my first reaction was he's a keeper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So if that, but then you, you changed my mind in that conversation, in that moment, the way you explained it far more eloquently than I am right now, like trying to, to, re, to reiterate what you had said. You changed my mind, and I and I was like, "You're right. That is a romantic gesture." And you know what? It worked. Maybe if she was outraged, uh, then I've been like, "Yeah, you know what? That was probably the wrong move." But apparently, he read her right. He read the situation mm-hmm. correctly, and it could be viewed as uh, very romantic. I guess they've also known each other for a, a long, mm-hmm. long time mm-hmm. too. Um, yeah, nothing in the way of pluggery because I haven't really done a heck of a lot except horror writers association stuff. So I always check out. Mm-hmm horror.org to see what new releases are up. That's about all I've been doing and listening to podcasts like mad. Aside from This Is Horror, who have had some really good shows lately, I've been listening to a lot of Murder Was The Case, um, which is a podcast. Oh, my brain isn't working. I want to see Lee Hazelwood, but it's not Lee Hazelwood. A podcast out of Toronto with Lee Meller. And it's a true crime podcast, but it's like the best true crime podcast I've ever fucking heard because it's like a, a person who is a criminologist and actually knows what they're talking about. They're not just like, you know, some chick and a dude who aren't involved in the thing talking about the thing, sort of like we do about <laughs> movies. Hang on a second here. Don't don't put us on blast. Yeah. Don't don't tell them. Don't let them think about it too much. But yeah, murder was a case. Is like if I'm gonna pimp a fucking other show on our show that's definitely the show to pimp i'm excited i've been looking for some more true crime in my life i've been listening to a lot of uh, vincent bugliosi audiobooks first uh, oh, good first about uh helter skelter then he did a book about the oj simpson trial outrage uh, the five reasons why the prosecution lost the, the trial and then i had uh, read uh his book about the jfk assassination if you want a fucking sp- second by second recounting of JFK getting his fucking head blown off man he goes into glorious gory detail like everything I've ever wanted to know about what that was like (laughs) Um, yeah he will definitely uh, uh, illuminate you so like I'm hungry for some some true crime you know what I'm saying do definitely pick up a murder was a case because I had gotten into Lee Miller's writing with his, when he was running, I don't know if he still is, Serial Killer Quar- Quarterly. I should still be a subscriber if he's still publishing Serial mm. Killer Quarterly. Because there's nothing, nothing more fun than holding up a magazine in uh, real life that says Serial Killer Quarterly. All like, this is just my, you know, Sports <laughs> Illustrated. Serial was, Killer Quarterly. People, people looking at you reading that on the bus are just wondering, it, wait. Is this about serial killers or is this for serial killers? Trade mag. I guess the best title for a magazine. Who cares what it's about? But yeah, he's a he's a really great writer, and I really enjoyed his curation of the writings in that. And um, his book uh, Cold Case Killers. It's all like a lot of Canadian crime, right? So the podcast itself, he talks about all sorts of crimes worldwide with a focus on North America with a double focus on Canada with a super hyper focus on like Toronto and Montreal so it's really fun you'll have a lot of fun mm, yeah. a sound it sounds like fun I'm into it I'm into it cool 
cool, but that's yeah. all I got except for sore eyes oh. and three wishes. <laughs> three wishes. The first wish is to have no eyes at all, Lydia Piva. We got to see how that looks. <laughs> we did. Yeah, we really, really did. So this film opens up with this flashback sequence. Flashback sequence. And, and I like this because it's that kick him in the balls scenario of this is what you have in store. And we got, we're in uh, Persia. We are seeing people just like skeletons literally leaping out of bodies turning into worm dudes turning into worm dudes like snake men we we are seeing people with boils across their face pandemonium this entire palace structure things stuck through people things barfing out of people people get having like just their entire torso torn in half mm-hmm, it's lovely mm-hmm. it's lovely it's lovely and it, and it really sets you up for and it's funny because this is not even as fucking messed up as it's going to get um but see sometimes the opening sequences are as violent as they are and the rest of the movie isn't quite that bad but uh, no this movie just amps it up keeps amping it up and r- initially i when i was a little nervous i'm always nervous showing lydia i know that you had had vague recollections of this movie i swear i did but i only remember the next scene basically <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's you know doppelganger at the end of the film because it's bookended yeah. by these two scenes but uh that's all i remember and then it dawned on me that either am i misremembering a different movie because there's a few movies where you have a rich financier or collector that's watching a giant crate come off of a fucking boat but yeah. i'm like no this is definitely the one i remember because i remember seeing ted Raimi get squashed yeah but then i thought it must have been something my mom was watching and i was out of the house you know just passing through and saw this bit and that's it yeah it it really by the time we saw a, a very graphic a skeleton leaving a body almost like dead alive where the rib cage is getting ripped out it's almost like that except it's this guy's skeleton he's got uh what was it bonus erectus where the skeleton tries to leap from the body it's literally the fake illness that dr nick references <laughs> but this, i just put that together in my head and i'm really proud of myself now um, when that happens, I just sat back. I, I was, I was like, okay, this movie is at the very least not going to annoy Lydia. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that. Yeah, I know it's definitely true. Yeah, and and then all of a sudden we cut to the present because when what we learn is that uh, essentially a wizard with who had uh, created this giant gem, uh, opal. A fire opal, which is yeah. cool because my brain, like anyone's brain, who's all into opals, would be like, that's not what a fucking opal looks like. We all know what an opal looks like. That's where we get the word opalescent for crying out loud. Opals mm-hmm. are like every color of the not horror rainbow. Mm-hmm. Like opals. You picture an opal. That's not what we're looking at. We're looking at a ruby, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. That's what I thought. But no, fire opals, Mexican fire opals to be exact, come in all shades of like brownish, reddish, orangish, but they are clear like that, not opaque like a mm-hmm. opal that we're thinking of like these are iridescent fire opals that have multi colors in them that are basically white with pink and green and peacock colors but now this is this is an opal so okay I'm, i guess you got to trust a gemologist we got a, a gemologist yeah i would be my heart would break if they got that prop wrong for this film because it's it's so it's the macguffin it's it's the whole thing and every and like the, like you were constantly focusing on this gem. We see its fucking creation at the beginning of the movie, 
and it, it's it's paramount to to the story. And if they just got the color of it wrong, I would just be like, "Come the fuck on, guys!" Like nobody. Oh, they could have made it up. It's yeah, exactly. Polina. Polina. <laughs> but like, yeah, the sorcerer is the kind of sorcerer you want to have in your pocket because he's not just in it for himself. He, mm-hmm. he wants to basically save the fucking world. So he makes this fire yeah. opal, which is, um, it works as the lamp in the genie that we know, the cartoon genies mm-hmm. that we know, and the mm-hmm. Aladdin's lamp mm-hmm. genies that we know. So back in the lamp. Back in the lamp he goes. And what we have, we learned, and there's a... a, a our narration at the beginning will tell us about the the true nature of the jinn created after the angels but before humans magical beings who need three wishes granted at, so they can unleash a legion of themselves onto the earth and rule i don't know if each jinn would then try to grant various wishes and then they would all just hang out together i don't know because they act like there's no other gins yeah it's 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 really it's really bizarre although they do say the same for singular is that of uh plural so it's like moose legion they are legion for they are many or just one (laughs) just one we only need one because he's such a chatty Kathy. Mm-hmm. But but I, I do love that image right before we get out of the, the opening credits of him just hunched over, hooded, whispering in a king, king's ear. That's what I want for my seductive, uh, persuasive wishmaster. That's what I want. I, 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 like, I, I wouldn't want him... You know, like Pinhead himself is so uh, regal and uh, religious, pious, dark, you know, so strong and proud and holding a box and standing with his back. beneath him to be whispering in the ear of of a despot, right? Oh, exactly, exactly. But uh, there's a a skittering quality to the djinn that I do really enjoy. Um, So now when we're back into the present and, like, this gem ends up sealed within a statue of... um, of a god. Yeah, the Ahura Mazuda. Yeah. And, like, we know something's gonna go wrong. Because, first things first, we got Robert England and Ted Ramey just standing next to each other. So, something's gotta happen. But then we see some guy, a, a construction worker, and he's no good, Lids. You know how I know? He's got a cigar in his mouth. And he's also putting some hooch in his styrofoam cup. He smokes... He drinks styrofoam. Well, I don't know about your calling smoking because I think everyone in this motherfucking show smokes. It is so 1997. Holy fuck. You ain't kidding. And it's funny that you say that because I'd say past the hour mark, I was really noticing how everyone's just smoking. Everyone's smoking indoors. Yeah. Like just constantly smoking. Um, Anyways, Ted Remy gets smushed. Yeah, yeah, quite quite wonderfully. It, it is, it's pretty great. And uh, that was when I, I both instantly forgot that Ted Ramey was in this movie. And then when I saw him, I was like, oh, yeah. Well, what role does he have in this thing? And then when he walks towards the crate, I was like, oh, yeah, he's he's the catalyst. Well, Ramey's are kind of forgettable. I mean, lovable dorks they are. But um, I got a Ramey and a fucking Barney Rubble within the same few moments and an actual Ted Ramey. Like, it's, it's a wonderful feeling for me. So it hits like a big check mark in my horror needs right there. Yeah. The, the Barney Rubble is after the rubble, as it were, is of Ted Ramey's body and the smashed statue are on the ground. There's this construction worker that sees this opal 
mm-hmm. embedded in the rubble. The rub- Barney Rubble. <laughs> Barney Rubble sifts through the, the rubble. rubble. He certainly does. <laughs> and he finds a ruby. No, an opal. And he pockets it because mm-hmm. it's cool like that. And then he takes it into a fence to brings it into a auction house. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that, that's pretty good. I'm glad that they didn't waste our time showing us that entire sequence. All we need to know is that it gets to an auction house. Now, this guy that runs this place is, you know, wheeling and dealing, wears sweatsuits indoors. Like, what the you fuck? You could transfer him straight to a strip club. And it would be the same guy. He's a strip club owner or an auction house dealer. Yeah. It's like whether he's dealing in million dollar nights with the girls or million dollar nights with the gems. Like, yeah, he's the same character. And I kind of like it. Yeah, me too. I, I, I do like it. He doesn't seem like a dirtbag, uh, but he definitely seems like he cares a lot about money, as you would when you're running a business. And he this looks interesting. Pays the guy whatever he pays the guy. But then he really needs his. uh gemologist to really look things over yeah i and like i like her too this is my linda hamilton yeah yeah not actually linda hamilton although they bear a striking as a striking resemblance um but it's alexandra alex and she is uh, gonna tell him the good news that this is a wholly unique item she's never really seen anything quite like it before and uh it could be priceless could be priceless. They don't know the provenance, so they have to figure it out. For all they know, it came from someone's grandmother's jewelry collection, which the owner states he's heard this one before. Mm-hmm. So they want to figure out where this gem comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, Alex has a friend that she plays tennis with. Mm. Uh, not someone she's dating. Not that he doesn't want to date her. But That's true. She's too, I think, too driven and busy. Mm-hmm. And this is part of why I like her, because she shoots him down in a friendly way. And, like... He's not going to stop trying, it seems, but he's not being a creeper about it. And they're still friends. Like, mm-hmm. he doesn't ruin their lives by trying to go take her for dinner or something nice like that. But she is way too busy because I figure she's crammed about 75 hours worth of work into the three hours that we've known her. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because she has, not only has she been at work and... Played around at tennis. Played, like, had a, a tennis match. Then she goes to fucking... <laughs> Coach or uh, basketball, yeah, and and it's just like it, you know we should probably all live our lives a little closer to Alex. By the time it's Wednesday, we would have done a month of of normal work. Have I not already complained today that my eyes hurt? Your eyes <laughs> this hurt. Is what I do because I cram Alex stuff, and that might not be tennis matches and basketball games. <laughs> Kill me. Could you imagine? I can't even. You fucking like running over in your Reebok jumpsuit, just telling girls to believe in themselves and know your enemy. Fucking stab me in the temple, Jesus Christ! <laughs> it's tough for me to do fifteen minutes of yoga a day. <laughs> running around a basketball, stinking basketball court. All I could smell is the stink of rubber and sweat. All I could imagine was when his his friendly gesture to her was putting on his fucking skeevy tennis hat. Mm-hmm. And wow, I was just like, so you've just been playing, you take your wet, those stupid cheap byway fucking hats that the 90s had with like the canvas hats with like the fucking crappy leather bills and shit like that. Like so 90s. You take that off your greasy, sweaty hair because you've just been playing tennis and you put it on her head. Isn't this fun? That's absolutely disgusting. Yeah, we were both pretty revolted. Oh my god! Like I just imagine like that. Listen, I'm a hat wearer, and when my hat gets sweaty, I wouldn't put that on someone else's fucking head. No. Like 
Jesus Christ. Anyways. <laughs> yeah, it is really gross. It is really gross. But she is a busy girl. But she finds time to get out the microscope and spend some time with the opal. Now, there is something within that opal. A flaw? A bubble? A hair? She a crack? Re- she doesn't really know what it is, but it definitely made her see some sort of trippy fucking vision. <laughs> now, when she tries to get whatever she thinks this imperfection might be off, she blows or or so I said breeze on it to like get some fog going and then rubs the gem on her blouse like rubbing a lamp yeah and I and that is what makes initially when when uh things break bad in this movie I'm wondering well shouldn't it be her fucking friend that he's the one that got the gin out and then I thought to myself oh no wait no she rubbed on the fucking gem first so I suppose that means she's in possession of this gem. I like how Alex Amberson, her name is AA, like Aladdin. Oh, wow. Yeah. Look at that. I know. Doing fucking, math, word math. Just fucking crack the world right open with that one. Now, More or less. So, yeah, it's Aladdin's lamp, it's Amber's opal. Now, speaking of cracking the world right open, when she goes to give her friend to analyze this fucking thing, he's like, no problem. But his tampering with his fucking super sci-fi DOS computer, fucking like 3D graphics of this fucking gem and I shit like that. I had to make that. Tron jokes because, yeah. That's yeah, exactly. I was like, when I think about computers in 1997, I'm, I'm just like, okay, this is not how any of that was. It's not how things are now. You don't get like these fucking rendering uh, graphics on your fucking gems as your... I don't know, like, fucking scanning them, you probably would have gotten, like, a fucking, like, dot matrix, like, printout, like, especially in this uh, scientific community, this fucking place of science. Um, It's the Department of Science. Department of Science. That's what it said on the building. Bold, underscore, italics, science. That's all you need to know. Um, (laughs) You know a place like that does not have... Like a modern printer, they'd have like the old shitty ones. But the point is, is that he breaks it open and it explodes. And in that explosion, he is gravely wounded and out comes a little baby. Vern Troyer. Vern Troyer. <laughs> a little baby Jen, though. Yeah, yeah, a little baby Jen. And we know there are some earmarks that make him familiar to the Jen that we met earlier. He's got some like hints of those head tendrils that he's got going on. Sort of like Poliquin or something from yeah. Nightbreed. Got some very Nightbreed looking looks to this mm-hmm, guy. Mm-hmm, yeah. And then he is able to grant his first wish, in which, not the most eloquent thing. When, when I'm looking at scenes like this, I. And I suppose where now as an adult, the things that don't work for me as as well is in certain aspects of his wish granting, um, I feel as though the conversation probably could have been a little smarter because I find people are just so instantaneously trusting. But I will say that let's assume that there's something about being in the presence of something that could grant your every wish. Maybe he's got some kind of aura about him or you're under some sort of like supernatural haze or he perhaps has just the power of suggestion on a very vague level starts telling you things like oh yeah that sounds good that sounds good Mm -hmm. but for the for the sake of this story you see this weird gross maggoty thing coming towards you and he's like do you want me to relieve you of this pain say i wish you already think you're dead at that point honestly i think that he was pretty hurting 
So, yeah. like, he had blood everywhere. He could hardly move. I think he probably thought that he was, like, heading toward the light, True. so to speak. <laughs> like, I don't think it registered entirely what he was talking to. Yeah, probably, like, some weird, like, vague dream sequence or something. But we know that from the power of this wish, and we also can uh, ascertain from this, that the djinn himself, you don't need to be in possession of a lamp or a crystal or whatever, he can grant you the wish, but the wishes that he needs, that he really needs to unleash essentially hell on earth, uh, would need to be that, that intimate contract that he has now with Alex. But in order to empower himself with wishes, souls, uh, in exchange for wishes, he can pretty much do it to anybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he's really good. He's got this knack. It backfires at one point, but he's got this knack of just being like, wouldn't you like this? Yeah. And then getting you to be like, yeah, I guess that'd be a great idea. And he's like, I'll make it so. Yeah. And it's like, wait, I didn't actually fucking wish for anything. I just agreed with you, you asshole. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, that's sort of what he does here. Yeah, a lot of uh, open-ended questions. Wouldn't uh, you like to not die? Well, of course. Okay, then. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. what sort of fucking contract is that? Yeah, it's, it's pretty vague, but I, but I suppose... It would, it would, people so don't very often say things as bold as, I wish that. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes people do say that, but not enough to get a story going in a fucking 90 minute movie, right? Well, wishes is exactly why some people are still like, you know, unfit or unhealthy or make bad decisions or addicted to things or all of these things. Because a lot of times they just simply wish that these things would not be or would be different and they don't actually do anything. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the whole wish thing just never really sits very well with me. So people aren't used to just wishing, especially not go-getters, like our friend Alex, who is doing all of these things all the time and is very action-oriented mm-hmm. and results-oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it just doesn't... The, the the people that we're dealing with aren't big wishers. That's true. And she definitely has um, a personality of a person that wouldn't even think to ask for other people for things uh naturally so like the conversations with her even when she doesn't realize that she's dealing with some kind of fucked up wish granting creature she still will patently refuse like no no i'm good no i I can do this myself whatever the only time really is that when she goes to her best friend and uh while he's dead and (laughs) she knows this she knows this because she was having a phone conversation with him when everything exploded. But th- it's more than that. It's like she can feel, see almost what's happening to these people. Some kind of powerful vision. It seems scary. Similar it, to the eyes of Laura Mars with a whole, a whole yeah. different reason. Yeah. yeah. Painful yet uh, scary at the same time. She's having a fit every single time these happen Mm -hmm. and this starts us off on her trying to figure out what the hell is going on her friend mysteriously dies she speaks to the police but it's deemed an accident and she does blame herself because it was something that he had uh, she had asked him to do and we learn a little bit later in this storyline that she feels responsible for her parents' death. They died in a fire. She was able to rescue her sister. She did not have the chance to rescue her parents. So she was probably pretty young when this was happening. At least she got her sister out. So she's used to feeling responsible for things that she had no control over. 
especially when it's linked to the death of someone that she cared very much about. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame. And uh, I like her sister's character very much, uh, but it, it's it, it. I see that it's a plot point, but I really don't like the scene where she's like, oh, it's just going to start all over again. Oh, it's the therapy and the this and the that. And it's like, wow, you're really painting a nice picture of your sister. Yeah, I, I, I'm. Uh, that sequence to me I, I could have been a little softer. She yeah. could have been a lot more sympathetic. Because a info dump. <clears throat> Oh, yeah. That was yeah. the other thing. I was like, you could maybe have spread this out over two scenes as opposed to trying to get it out all in one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also, it makes her sister... Because it's confusing because her and her sister... I mean, they live together. They seem to have they seem to have a pretty good relationship. And she's her younger sister. Alex is the older sister. And, and, and her, her younger sister seems a little hipper, a little bit more fun, but she doesn't seem like a mess. And and uh, and and so it also seems like she's at the same time trying to help her out, but is also very frustrated with her. And it's it doesn't entirely track because which is it? Are they close? Do they love each other, or do they have a strained relationship? Mm-hmm. I, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. There's no constant there. Yeah. But then you could be like, well, you can have a strained relationship with your close sister. Or yeah, you have a that's close relationship true. Relationship with the strain, it's hard to have that close. Like you could, it can be a combination of those things, oh, but yeah. it doesn't really track. Yeah, but, it, uh, it, it seems. It, it, but like you said, it's very info dumpy, and like I said, mm-hmm. she comes off as very unsympathetic to her. So it's like this is gonna happen, then this is gonna happen. Like, listen, I know your best friend just died, but it's not your fault. And if you think it's your fault, all this other stuff is gonna happen, which is kind of annoying. What you need to do is put that cigarette out and fucking shape up <laughs> hours later. Like, well, yeah, nah, it is a little harsh. It is a little harsh. Yeah, but it doesn't ruin anything for me. But but again, like, every time we are going to be meeting our Jin character, that's where I fucking dial in. And the, the first time that he is out in the world, I love it because it's a pretty funny sequence at a pharmacy in which a homeless guy is panhandling and then he gets shooed away by a pharmacy owner and then he walks away and he encounters the gin in an alley. And there's something I love so much about these grotesque monsters. Like you said, it's very spawn. If mm-hmm. I could take it to uh, Blade 2, Guillermo del Toro's, uh, his weird mutated vampires that like the the leader of them basically operating within the alleyways as a homeless person just that look of just like old weathered clothes and someone that would go generally unnoticed because you would look at them and say like oh it's a homeless person i'm not paying attention to that person and i love that level Uh, i love putting monsters in those scenarios and it makes absolute sense to me because where do you find people who are desperate where do you find people that would very easily want things in life that they don't have you go to the poorest people mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and 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 so it makes all kinds of fucking narrative sense and and i really really like it to the point in which when he changes to the 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 the, the handsome business suit looks like a successful person i mean i just like the aesthetic less i understand it i i really understand i like it a lot more because it's a lot more believable and it can meld into a whole bunch of different places and he is needed because i don't think that this guy in the alley would get anywhere near alex no that's absolutely true and Mm -hmm. i i think that like it it makes absolute sense to have him you know like because in the on the same token if you go around desperate people you can get 
you can get wishes out of them. But if you go to somebody and you look very successful, you're handsome, you're wearing a very expensive suit, then you can convince people of things because you're obviously successful. He could have walked into that pharmacy dressed as he, as we see him for the rest of the film, as a successful person, mm-hmm. and asked Reggie Bannister if you didn't want that bum away. How about you wish the bum away? Because yeah. I'll help you with that. So he could have gotten a wish out of anywhere. He could have gotten a thousand wishes a minute standing in that alley, I guess, too. But mm-hmm. like, it is a great excuse to have us have Reggie Bannister get destroyed with cancer before our eyes mm-hmm. moments which is crazy because I, and i do like this phantasm thing where we have angus scrim at the beginning and reggie bannister in the pharmacy getting mm-hmm. destroyed um just a lot of horror icons that are just there as extra bodies bonus bodies yeah basically if you die in this movie you were in something yeah <laughs> pretty much you people pretty much. know people know you for something yeah. so i really enjoyed this and i enjoyed that there was a dig at reggie bannister's baldness which there are a lot of those in the phantasm franchise so <laughs> it fit it fit very well and him getting to tell off people like i don't know i just loved this scene very much it's a very very good scene and that's where um we see what the jinn is really up to. Now, he doesn't kill this homeless person right away. And so you're wondering what the cost of this wish is. There has to be a cost. This, cost. This, um, but, but the thing that I do really dig about this character a lot, and now he has uh, words on his side. He's very silver-tongued, and he can get what he wants. He knows he's been doing this a long time. He knows how to talk to people to get things out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love the fact that his power is so dependent on other people like he can't he he seems to have almost limitless magical abilities it doesn't seem to cost him anything to 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 wield his magic but you he can't wield it at a, on his own volition now you can twist and interpret your wishes pretty much any way that he wants and believe me it will be the worst way possible for you but um there's just something fun about that because he's like very powerful but also neutered at the same time so i really i really dig that dynamic now basically the jinn is going to go through life now just like granting weird monkey paw wishes to people he's not going to pay for his suit he's going to compulsively ask if, a, if if the teller wants to be beautiful forever and turns her into a mannequin <laughs> it's all kinds of cool shit like that suit for me soul for me nothing for you <laughs> works out well for him yeah, he's really good at that. And it seems that he does set everything up. Like, it's so easy for him to get three wishes out of somebody. Yeah. So, so easy. Not including Alex, of course. We'll find that out later. But, mm-hmm. like, if he just needs three wishes, we're like, that'd be pretty easy. Because you just wish for something. He fucking destroys your life in a heartbeat. And you have to wish for it to be undone. So that's two wishes gone. You only have one left. Everyone's going to wish for, like, trillions of dollars or whatever. I don't know. One million dollars to have a Vern Troyer joke. That's- <laughs> Vaguely related to him. Um, <laughs> because somebody fucking does. Somebody fucking wishes for a million dollars, which is just ridiculous even in 1997. But, like, that's all he needs to do. You wish for anything to be beautiful forever. You're going to wish for that to be undone because he's turning you into a mannequin. Mm-hmm. Like, it's ridiculous. It seems so easy that he can get these three wishes. So we're like, well, once he gets near Alex, all he has to do is make her wish for something ridiculous make it horrible she'll wish for it to be undone bingo bango bob's your uncle and third wish is on its way Mm, yes right now alex is going to uh change her (laughs) change her job from gemologist to super sleuth (laughs) with the aid of a folklorist 
<laughs> Which actually, you know, I was thinking, like, where's the Hellraiser angle? And I thought, well, wait, is that is that Barbie Wild? And it's not fucking Barbie Wild. No, it looks like her though, right? No, it really does look like her. Jenny O'Hara, which is a great role too. I really enjoy the folklorist that fills her on what the hell a gin is anyway. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And uh, she's led the she's led to this woman by Robert England, fucking uh, Raymond Beaumont, who is the, the the person who is a collector of objects and cares little about the actual lore around them, which is interesting. So he seems to have like a... You could imagine that he probably has a base knowledge of every piece in his collection, probably enough to tell you one anecdote. But if you actually tried to deep dive with him on everything, it seems like he doesn't know. So he needs to direct Alex to that. Uh, to that woman, and uh, and she's got a pretty great a character, very distracted, artsy, a uh, bit of a control freak. Uh, I, I, I do dig that a lot. And she lets her know that, you know, this isn't all I dream of genie and magical lamps and, and all kinds of fun and games. And it leads into this interesting uh, concept, which I really took home with me with in this movie, uh, really captured my imagination about... The twisting of folklore, the twisting of knowledge, and losing knowledge. Uh, To I've talked about this a couple of times on the podcast, but this concept of how much we as a society have forgotten what's existed, and we don't know what we've forgotten. Like how we've forgotten that a clown needs to eat one child for every month of winter? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Check our clown episode for that reference. Um... Things like that fucking fascinate me because it's so plausible. It's so plausible that we can... Well, the clown thing, not so much. (laughs) Yes, it is. Entirely. Think of all the people that are afraid of clowns. Why do they lurk in the dark? I didn't think they lurked in the dark, but I was told by a clown that they do, in fact, lurk in the dark. Oh, my God. It explains it all away. But, yeah, no, it's, it's true, especially with something like the gin, because then... Of course, you get curious and you're like, okay, am I looking up a, a fairy tale or am I looking up a demon? Mm-hmm. I can't tell anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and um, looking back on, on, onto your uh, basic demonology, um, uh, demons themselves don't... Demons themselves are far more bestial. Uh, generally speaking, if you're dealing with um, that seductive, I will give you things type presence it's technically a devil they're a little higher uh, considered more powerful more intelligent yeah so if you if you are um dealing with uh with demons and and devils such as these within traditional folklore and then you give them a a particular name and then later on the the djinn become these sort of like happy jolly genies with their curly q boots and their hammer pants and their fucking turbans and whatever and uh or whatever i don't know <laughs> but it, hammer pants i like that it was hammer pants hammer pants so, so you guys can't see that sometimes sometimes things that i say don't make lydia laugh but they make her twist her face into something that could be considered a smile um she's not much of a laugher but um that's all to say that this becomes a very interesting aspect of the story to me. And I love this idea of just like a fucking evil genie. And and when you break Wishmaster down to it's the evil genie movie, it can sound kind of stupid, but they present it really fucking seriously. 
and 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 it and it is it is in a way almost more seductive and more uh, broad stroked than Cenobites and Hellraiser. If you are the type of person that could be seduced by the ultimate experience and pain and pleasure, and, and usually the types of people that are seduced by Cenobites that can call the Cenobites that will solve the puzzle box are types of people that have in their own way, either literally or perhaps uh, metaphorically, reach the limits of what their own minds can uh, can take them through various life experiences and they want this ultimate high. Not everyone wants that type of thing. Not everyone would solve the puzzle box. Oh, I'd be but, immune to the hell guardians or whatever you want to call mm, them. Um, I would be immune in Hellraiser, I believe, because mm-hmm. they would be like, ultimate experience and pleasure and pain. I'd be like, I'm good, thanks. Because yeah. I have an idea that this is going to cost me something or mm-hmm. it's not going to live up to what I'm envisioning or it's just something I don't want. But if Wishmaster was like, would you like another cup of coffee? Okay. I'd be like, yeah. Yeah, I fucking do. I always want another cup of coffee. And then he'd fuck me, so. Yeah. So, 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 all of these things together are, are painting a really interesting uh, story. And it will come to the head when we start noticing, or she or Alex will really start noticing, that this might not be in her imagination, that people are dying in and around her. And more so than that, she is connected to every death. She sees every death, especially when it comes to the point in which the djinn uh, asks for the uh, check for all those goods and services that he's been given people around town, which will result in sucking their fucking souls out of their bodies and their essence and their being into his little gemstone. Because she, he will, he got the homeless guy, he got the the teller at work. You know, he's been killing like <laughs> random people. Yeah, I really enjoyed Kane Hodder's death because <laughs> Kane Hodder is a guard basically yeah and he looks quite different with facial hair which i loved I yeah loved. weird beard it is a weird beard like weird beard <laughs> like I've, I've literally never seen another human being on earth with a beard like that oh you probably could if you go down to johnny razor down the road it's a barber shop you see all sorts of different crazy beard contraptions that people get their faces shaved into but Kane Hodder, this is the point where we get to see the wishes almost backfire. Oh, my God, yes. Because he's like, I'll grant you, I, I need to get in here, so I'll grant you anything you want. And he's like, I wish you would go away. And he's like, so, like, un- he's out of control of his own body in a way. It's like it forces him to turn around and he starts walking away. And you can see the look on his face just like, God damn it, that backfired. <laughs> I don't want to be walking away, but I have to be because I'm granting his wish because that's what I do. I'm a goddamn genie. And he's so pissed off with himself mm-hmm. and everything because he's been wished away. I mean, that's a way and one way to defeat him. Yeah, it definitely would be. And if and Kane Hodder would have stopped talking, st- stop talking, but yeah. he had to run his mouth. The only way through here is through me, and I would love to see you try that. Oh, really? <laughs> that's all it takes, and that the genie is able to take back control of his own body mm-hmm. and go back there and walk through him. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it it he turns into pain glass. Like, what would you call that? I think that the idea 
that they were doing with their limited amount of special effects that we had at the time in 1997, as far as computer graphics, they were like, okay, this isn't T2 level of turning to liquid, you know, and he could walk through him. Really? I don't think they could interact because they have somebody turn into glass Mm -hmm. later on, but no one really walks through her. It Mm -hmm. turns into a physical effect right after. The mannequin turns into a physical effect right after. This is something that someone needs to interact with. So I think this was a little tougher at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So he's molecularized and it looks like stained glass or mosaic, Mm -hmm. but something that is small little portions that you could conceivably walk through i think it would have been way more fun to just slice him up like the horse in the cell and have him walk through like some meat curtains that would be fun too but i was not part of the direction here i was not one of the effects people we left that up to B, who did a wonderful job and everything else except this fucking tron bullshit where somebody walks through this molecularized mosaic stained glass window person it sort of morphs through it and then he explodes. You can see that they're pretty happy with it. This the the CGI in this movie, I want to say, is not bad for the time. It's not as bad as I seem to remember it, but it's not great either. There are a couple of moments where it works pretty well. They use digital effects a little bit in the Jin's first transformation sequence. Also, um, our Jin is able to masquerade as people by flaying their their faces off and able to able to place the face on his own and uh that's where he take that's where the 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 fucking little med student loses his eyes because he you wish you weren't seeing this nah. <laughs> <laughs> that's why i wanted to do this movie i just wanted to do that voice all day but um and 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 there's digital effects with that transformation. I don't know if it's CGI. I imagine it is. It might be rotoscoping, but like at the same time, I think it was probably CGI. There's something very CGI about it. I think, ironically, uh, rotoscoping that those images on top of each other might have actually looked a little bit more convincing. But this is a blend of of practical and 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 uh, non practical effects. So. Um, those are the moments which the CGI and they also do some sort of ghostly images, people coming out of walls and and stuff like that at the height of his power. Eh, it's all right. I I, I think um, the movie would be a little better without it. But I the, like every instance of CG in this film except the Kane Hodder death. Yeah, the Kane Hodder thing is a really weird death, and I think that every time you see a horror icon in this movie they get a nice little uh, set piece death um kind of missing the mark on you get kane hotter here it's jason Voorhees. why don't you do something fucking fucked up to him or something like that i mean like you could easily just have him walk through him by punching his fucking head off like you know what i mean like just do something like that uh, make it really, really gory, mm-hmm. um, because it's like you have to get through me. Doesn't necessarily mean you have to phase through me, and literally just means that fucking like punch your hand through his chest and, ha- and hold the heart. You do a Jason kill, like if I guess if they don't want to get blood on him, right? Oh yeah, that's but at true. At least just tear him in half. Yeah, like, with your mind or something. Yeah. He, uh, <laughs> I was gonna say he's been wearing that suit for a few days now, so it's probably not as funky fresh as people might would hope. 
Well, he's supernaturally clean. Oh, that's probably true. Right? Sort of like me. Yeah, that's true. You you do have uh, you do have a supernatural uh, cleanliness about you. That's why I've never even seen one speck of dust on any furniture here ever. It's not even like my OCD hand cleaning or cleaning in general. It's just like this. <laughs> We're kind of out of time. It's one moment in time. Right after you cleaned once years ago. Um, that'd be amazing. Oh, that would be the dream. That would how. That's how he would get you. That's he would how say, I would "Wish for yeah." Like, wouldn't you wish to always be in a clean place with no germs? Except that I like cleaning because it helps while I'm doing the meditative zen of sweeping, mopping, oh. dishes, even personal cleaning. I my brain is working on other things. You don't really have to think about like now I'm soaping my underarms. You you're you're just doing those things automatically, but your brain is somewhere else. And I'll write outlines for stories and novels and stuff. During it's very Taoist of you. I like that. Well, yeah, I I should lend you sweeping changes, Zen of housekeeping. It's a great book. Interesting, interesting. Maybe I'll sweep my floor one of these days. One of these days, if you can. <laughs> Figure out how to use a dustpan. <laughs> Not like you haven't ranted about dustpans on the show before, Wes. <laughs> Have I? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Probably like episode 30 or something. Anyway. Um, th- these sequences are really fucking fun. And, and, and watching this character, watching the djinn talk to people, even out of makeup, which is actually nice... I get it. If you if you have an actor there, he was probably fucking thrilled that he didn't have to be in that heavy makeup at all times. Oh, and and he really becomes this uh, this devil figure that is haunting Alex throughout this entire picture, particularly when he's dressed up in the nice suit. I mean, it's one thing to have this monstrous entity in and around you and shit, but it, beca- it does become a little uh, like Nightbreed if you're showing them too much, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, you don't necessarily always want to see this guy walking out in the daytime, and there's going to be lots of sequences in which he would be in normal lighting, and then the costume starts... I mean, the the, the, the costume for the djinn is fucking amazing. It really is. But, uh, but you know, when you're starting to see it in, in under halogen lights and shit like that, it starts to look less intimidating and less creepy. It would look pretty rubbery and that gym because he's pulling full on stalker mode and mm-hmm. he goes to watch her coach a basketball game and hits mm-hmm. on her, her sister mm-hmm. and gets their phone number mm-hmm. all in this like little scene if he would have been as the gin there would have been a thousand screaming girls mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean it just wouldn't work yeah he even uh I, I do like his bit of sleuthing that he like a lot of he, he doesn't just have these informations a lazier writer might just say oh it's this connection this connection between them so it's almost like a, a beacon a homing uh missile like a terminator yeah basically he's like i know even the terminator had to like look up the phone book but like yeah. but like for him he tries everything he goes to her boss trying to and you know what as sleazy as this guy is with his gold chains and his fucking sweatsuit sitting behind a huge desk he still won't he's like i'm not telling you where she fucking lives are you out of your mind because he doesn't know who this fucking guy is i'm just like good for you man good for you i like you that one that struck me as the most monkey paw wish though too and that one was kind of the most devastating Mm -hmm. where you see how cruel that the the gin can be Mm -hmm. where you know, he's not going to roll over. He's not going to give the his employee's address to this guy, no matter how smarmy he is or how well-heeled he is. Mm-hmm. But for a million dollars, 
Where's that a million dollars come from, though? Million dollars just doesn't fucking grow on trees. And I've seen this this type of stuff done in different narratives from comedies to whatever. When you get money, the, the, the fantasy is, I just have a million dollars. But it's like, no, where does that money come from? It has to come from somewhere. If you're manifesting money out of nowhere, you wouldn't necessarily even be able to use that money because it's not... Was it, when was it printed? I'd like to think in my cartoon brain that when you wish for a million dollars, it just dematerializes from somewhere under Fort Knox, if that is actually a thing, yeah. and it just shows up, and it is actual money, it's viable currency, mm-hmm. and it's not going to be missed, mm-hmm. or they'll assume it was misplaced, mm-hmm. or it melted under the World Trade Centers, or whatever. Uh, it was money, and it, but it didn't come from like someone's death. And mm-hmm. because of their, like, inheritance or insurance money. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But his mom uh, signs, uh, fills out some beneficiaries when she's uh, getting ready to get on a plane. And the plane goes down. Pretty devastating. Mm-hmm. Not only responsible for her death, but less than 200 people on that plane. You know what I'm saying? So, pretty fucking heinous. Well, we thought that, right, like, there's a phone ringing right after. So, I'd assume that it's the phone ringing being like, your mom just died. And, like, suddenly <laughs> everything's happening very fast. But it's the police calling mm-hmm. Alex because there was some guy at the police station. Because, mm-hmm. like, he's doing his sleuthing. He's gone to the police station to try and get her address. Yeah, he really he really did. And trying to get her address, he uh, this sequence I really fucking like. I like this idea. Although, like, the cop... <laughs> but, 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 but again, I'm going to chop this up to the presence of this gin. He really knows how to get that wall down between certain people. Because this cop is immediately, so this guy shows up, you're sitting down at my desk, and you want to know where this one person who is on a closed case that I was working on, where she lives. Why would I fucking tell you that? Yeah. Um, unless you have something to, to reveal about this. And if you don't have anything to reveal about the case, like, what are you, like, a stalker? Like, this guy's a cop. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. So, like, so, like, this, so he knows all the things that, like, a, a, a stalkerish Dude, like, follow you know, just fucking ex boyfriend, abusive ex boyfriend, or some shit like that, right? So he's not gonna do it. But then this sequence in which there's a guy talking, getting interrogated by two uh, detectives, and he's gonna walk, but they have, but he, they know he's guilty of all these crimes, and he wishes that this guy would commit a crime right in front of everybody. Nice. And and uh, and holy shit, he pulls out, he grabs a gun. Blows those two detectives away. Everyone in the police uh, precinct is on this guy, including our cop friend. And Which I felt this scene went on like fucking ten minutes too long. Yeah, it was probably uh, like a three minute scene, but it felt probably like 10, especially minutes. especially when uh, uh, he guts the card, and then the other guy turns around and is like, "Hey, wait a second, you're stealing that card." And then he just gives this the criminal like super strength or whatever, rips this guy's jaw off. Love that. I love a good jaw rip. And uh, well, they're just like I was just like looking at people's faces. You're like, I'm fucking ripped that jaw right off. Anyway, um, okay there. <laughs> well, My those are Dahmer. <laughs> those of us with He-Man strength think about it all the time. I have a jaw ripping sequence in uh, the Teresa comic ah, coming good. up. It's gonna be very cool. But anyway, um. Uh, and then he, he doesn't even go to her. He goes to her folklore friend. He's just collecting souls at this point. Mm-hmm. It's nice that he goes to the folklore friend because then we get the way things pan out. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I love this sequence is really really good because it allows the uh, another exchange between these two women that I really enjoyed the first time. Except now we can definitely tell that there's something up. She seems to have information. It's like, oh, you, you know, uh, your boss would really like this cabinet because it's an antique, right? Um, and uh, she says, well, I never told you where I worked. And he's like, you didn't? Well, then how would I know that? And then she, Alex offers a suggestion, which is fucking genius. I love it. And, and then she says, oh, yeah, that's how I know. Pretty good, pretty good. And then she keeps trying to offer her things. And then she has this... This the, the sequence of dialogue that I love so much, this idea of the, the spells and magic. There's no more wizards. There's no more magic. All the sorcerers are dead and all the spells are lost to time. Yeah. I was like, yes, that is such a fucking cool line. That's so fucking good. Because there's nothing you can do. You know, this is the 20th century. At the time, the 20th century. Yeah, the 20th century. Like, Alex, like, don't you think that that all sounds a little airy-fairy? And she's like, but there has to be a way to defeat the djinn, whether you think it's airy-fairy or not. And she's like, well, there there was. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell. At, like, when is she going to realize who she's talking to? Because we realize it when she's like, aren't you warm? Or aren't you cold? Yeah. Wouldn't you like a sweater? I can get you a sweater. Do you want a sweater? Yeah. <laughs> Are you warm? Do you want me to turn the heat up? Yeah. Well, I'll turn the heat up if you want. Just yeah. tell me. And I will. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't, you, don't you wish you weren't hungry right now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So we know who we're dealing with. We, we wish that right here mm-hmm. she would realize who she's dealing with because she's just like, there used to be, but you're fucked. Yeah. This idea that we as a society have left sorcery and magic and myth behind. We're modern people now. And with that comes the consequence of almost like a bacteria we no longer have immunity for that has been thawed out and has come to kill us. And with no immunities, we're vulnerable to something that our ancestors weren't as vulnerable to. And because we don't believe in the superstition anymore, we're that much more susceptible because we don't fear a stranger offering us things in the way that well, this person is clearly not going to be at least a genie trying to take my soul. That's not a thing that happens. No, but, you know, 5,000 years ago, you might have actually believed that. Exactly. Let alone even just when you were a child, before you knew how rainbows work, you might have believed that there was a pot of gold <laughs> and be pissed at your grandma to the point that you wanted to stab her for not letting you go chase the rainbow to get the gold. Yes, Lydia. I'm still angry. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> Holy shit. I can feel the venom. But. Because I know how rainbows work. It has lost all of its magic. True. It's always still fun to spot one. But we find out that our our friend has gotten her face fucking taken off. And this is where these two uh, characters, the Jin and uh, Alex, meet face-to-face, really, for the first time. Face-to-face-to-face. It's just a face joke. Are you making fun (laughs) of the skin lady in the other room? (laughs) Yes. Someone has to make fun of people. Lydia, and if it's not me, then it's going to be the Jin, because he he's you can really tell that there's a point in which he's relishing this. Now this is a bit of an awkward position for him to be in, and you wonder how he's going to pull it off. How do you pull this off? Because this is not somebody that you can seductively 
coerce into wishing. Yeah, she doesn't she, want anything, for one. You're, you're sneaky. Genie tricks didn't work. Yeah. And you're not going to be, like, playing word games with her. She's mm-hmm. on to you. And she's been... She had a little library scene. So we know she knows all about you and your funny genie tricks. Yeah, you and your genie tricks. She fucking, like, downed a bottle of wine, smoked 800 cigarettes, and read about myth and mythology and, and, and knows the score. But she... Still is not convinced, but he tries to almost like, he almost tries to like, you know, first one's free, dear Alex, free wish on the house, me, the genie, and wishes, and she wishes the obvious, you should destroy yourself, and he's like, oh, how original, I'll do just that, and then he blows his head off, I like that he just has like a fucking Dirty hairy revolver. Well, it had to, because she wished that he would blow his fucking brains out, is what yeah. she wished, so he has to have a gun, so poof. Yeah, the the line, um, I used to think about it a lot, because I thought the line was really funny at the time, it's less funny now, but I still like it, he's like, that which that is eternal cannot die, but if it's any consolation, that hurt like hell. I really liked that line when I was young. Because I just thought it was so funny. It's good because it's a mashup of like slapstick and Lovecraft. Yeah. Kind of thing going on. Yeah, exactly. And I do like the fact he's like, well, that hurt. So I hope that helps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, she ultimately does wish what I wouldn't have seen coming because you kind of like it is kind of predictable that she wishes he would kill himself mm-hmm. is she wants to know where he's come from. Yeah, knowledge. She wishes for knowledge, like because, to know him. To know him because maybe in her mind, everything that she's been reading in books so far, everything that she's been speaking to, to her friends and colleagues and and experts, none of them. They all have the same in, impediment. This forgotten knowledge. Mm-hmm. So if she knows him, maybe she can figure out a way to, to defeat him. So we get to enter once again into the Hellraiser realm. <laughs> this fucking sequence is amazing. I love it. His evil genie throne is just so fucking perfect. It's so cool. And and of course, everyone that he's granted wishes to thus far, just being tormented, flayed. They're all just like screaming their their guts out. And there's even a fucking little gatekeeper, a little Cenobite guardian there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Running through the hallways, the uh, the within this crystal, within this realm, it's all red. It's all very cool. The dialogue is really neat. And then she, while running through the sequences, she like this is not what I wanted. It's like, well, you be more careful how you word your wishes. Then you'll get them next time. <laughs> and 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 uh, and so he already is now using her younger sister as bait. And he's like, you stay away from my sister. He's like, well, I might not be able to. I might have to use your sister. I mean, if you don't make your wishes. You make your wishes, I don't have to bother your sister. But if you're not making your wishes, then I'm going to have to get you to make... So it's like, I, I like it. It's like this weird circular logic of like, well, you're making me go hurt your sister. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can stop me if you wish yourself out of the fucking gem. Oh, I see what you did there, Jeannie. <laughs> <laughs> so fucking good. Well, she's, you know, doing some math in her brain. She's like, okay, I'll wish myself out of the gym, but I got to wish myself with my sister without him. Mm-hmm. Easy. Done. You know, I'll fix mm-hmm. it. Everyone always tries to fix it with their fucking second wish, don't they? Yeah. And, and, in, and in a five minute fucking span of time, she has blown two of her fucking wishes. Yeah. That's the way they do it. 
That is the way you do it. And and it's crazy. I, I, I was like, man, this genie's got her fucking number. It's like, Jesus Christ. Like, she knows he's an evil djinn. She knows all of his wishes are going to not go the way that she wants. She knows that if she gets three wishes out of him, it'll essentially end the world. This is why I don't like playing chess. <laughs> and yet he still gets her. Mm-hmm. Now, her sister's left for that party at Robert England's house. Who wouldn't? Yeah. I mean, it looked like an okay party. I thought that she'd be really devastatingly underdressed for it by the time she shows up in a sweaty panic to rescue her sister. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it's a pretty good mix of people. Lots of nice quiet corners. Probably a garden that you could retire to. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and it's interesting because of the way that uh, Raymond uh, Beaumont's house is. I mean, everything's a conversation piece. You can go anywhere in this place, and you can just talk about all the arts, all the statues everywhere. Even like, the things that aren't there are conversation piece, because I would wonder about that great big thing, that stone with a fucking plaque on it that says, Ahira Mazuda, that has nothing on it. Yeah, it's like, you know? what's the story here, exactly. Raymond? Let alone all of the artifacts and, mm-hmm. and things that he has in there, which would be fascinating. I'd even want to go to this party. Mm-hmm. He seems to be like a party thrower. Oh, yeah, he definitely seems obsessed with his collection. I mean, I, I, it's so funny when when she goes to talk to him initially and talking about his assistant. Ted Ramey was playing uh, Raymond's assistant, and, and she's like, oh, I'm sorry that it happened. And then uh, Raymond's just like, yep, yeah, it was priceless, one of a kind. He's like, you're talking about your assistant, right? And he's like, oh, yes, of course, of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Typical socialite, I suppose. Doesn't know oh, a yeah. thing about the things he collects. Just use them to populate his house so he can throw lavish parties. Exactly. Fucking snappy dresser, too. Nice shirt, fucking smart vest. Robert England cleans up nice. He does. He really does. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... So does Tony Todd, I might add. Oh, my God. Tony Todd. Tony, be still my heart. He always looks great, but he looks triply great here. And even if it's a monkey suit, as some would want to call it. Yeah, he's dressed up in this. Uh, he's the doorman, essentially. And it's funny. Uh, I like that in two different scenarios, horror icons are used to basically block the gin from a door. <laughs> yeah, like doorkeepers. And yeah. Like, yeah. It's almost as almost you could you could interpret it as these uh, these well known horror icons are stopping him saying no, you can't be a horror icon not until you get through me. Hmm, I like that interpretation of all of this. Yeah, yeah, it definitely seems like it's like the Jin uh, laying waste to all of these iconic horror people right throughout the entirety of the film, and. Um, Leaving the arguably the the biggest horror icon for last, which would be Robert England, but mm-hmm. um, Tony Todd, very interesting. I like this uh, this conversation. Not only does he get a Valentine, he gets a fucking name. Yeah, you know Johnny Valentine. Yeah, you know, like he's not just like nameless thug. I bet you that was Tony's thing. He's like my character. My character. I want my character to have a name. I'm not going to be doorman. Thank you oh, very I much. I wish Dick Warlock would have been in this. <laughs> That would have made me so happy. Or Julian Sands, if you want to talk about another otherworldly stoic, Julian Sands from uh, yeah. Warlock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that would work. You could, you could, like, the, the, you know, what's funny? They give us like half a dozen horror icons just running around as characters in this movie, and we're like, but if they could only get a little bit more, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but There's no pleasing me. But anyway, 
But th- this this conversation is pretty funny because you almost think that uh, Tony Todd's character is not going to buy into this. But again, takes his time. He knows that aggression is not going to work. And it's because he's, you know, he even admits it himself. He's all hopped up on his uh, on his wish. You know, he's got his wish boner out. So he's like, you know, about to come. I want that third fucking wish. And so he's got to slow down, calm himself a little bit. Don't you want a freedom of a new, exciting job? Well, of course I do, says Tony Todd. Yeah. I like the delivery of the line, too. He is sort of like a reluctant whisper. Yes. You know, like, it's 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 cool. At, like Tony Todd himself. And then he ends up in Houdini's glass case. Nice. And, and he says... Random. Super, super, super fucking random. And I, I suppose that is... A way to go. I mean, he says, like, Houdini did it in two and a half minutes. Mrah. But I was like, you know, Jin, you were in a stone the entirety of Houdini's life. You never... How did he have that information? Maybe he just sees all. Maybe he, like, gleans it. Yeah, you know, or... Here, here we go. Um, he... Grants people wishes. He takes them to their soul. Perhaps he collects their knowledge. Oh, could be. Could be. That would be a way to do it. So, yeah. like, the crow with his grabbing your forehead it, it, that, that's what I'm. Th- that's what yeah. I'm thinking, right? Like, like, and, and we definitely see him when he's he collecting everyone's soul almost simultaneously. Five or six people. Uh, he, he, he's I- I- empowered by that. Because he seems a little more loosey-goosey and chattier and more. It makes a little more sense later on in the film than he does when he goes to buy the suit. Yeah. He's like, I'm new in your world. I'll yeah, just put money in your tits. Yeah, I know. He's definitely Ta-da. he's definitely being like a weird like fucking cartoon alien in those scenes. Really is. Sometimes talking to people in a way where you're thinking no one would if people if you started talking to people like that in real life no one would be relaxed around you. They would instantly start thinking, what is up with this guy? No, and then later on, he knows how to operate a cell phone. Oh, you know what? That's a good point. So yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Let's go with that. He, it must be he absorbs knowledge. Yeah, he absorbs knowledge. So he has a little bit of... Uh, and every time he does it, gets a little bit more knowledge. So that that's how sense. he does it. Um, it's interesting. Uh, I, I like the death, but it is fucking random as fuck. But if you can do anything... Why not do anything? It should be random. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then we get to this party, and I, this was a, this was almost like one of the most organic, easiest wishes he ever got out of anybody. Raymond Beaumont. Oh my God, he just wants a party that people will never forget. People will talk about it for centuries. Centuries, and he's like, oh, oh boy, would I love to throw a party like that? You know, just doing his Robert England thing. So good, um, and. Fuck, man, if all hell doesn't break loose, this fucking party sequence is buck wild. It begins with a girl turning to glass and shattering and basically slaughtering and skinning everyone within a 10-foot radius. Yeah, yeah, like a fucking um, shrapnel. Like a landmine went off or something like that. Then we have fire pokers, things getting pushed to people's faces and contorting people's faces (laughs) 
as if they're made of silly putty. There were some scenes where I'm like, people's bodies don't behave like that. Skin doesn't work like that. But then there were a few bludgeoning deaths where I'm like, yeah, people's faces kind of do behave like that. Yeah. Really grotesque stuff. And, you know, aside from it's it's way more than the guy in the toga pissing in the punch bowl. Yeah. We do have eviscerations and death and murder and mayhem and a guy on fire and the fucking statues come to life. Like oh everything. God. It's crazy. Jack the Ripper comes out of a fucking painting. Yeah. And like, he's a really good Jack the Ripper too. Oh my God. It's so fucking good. He's got a little murder bag, his little doctor murder bag and just starts cutting someone's throat. It's so fucking good. And the statue sequences is really cool. I love the statue sequences. Mm. I do. It's the second time where I started thinking of like Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Mm. But done, of course, 1997 by Can B. It's just wonderful. Those are about the coolest animated statues I've ever seen in film. So effective. There are there's definitely moments where you can see that it's people in very like the Poseidon is is a guy in just very good makeup and i wonder if they got mimes or if they got people who just like natural body actors they must have because you could paint me gray and i'd still i'd look Mm -hmm. look like a fucking nerd painted gray like i would not be able to hold myself like that yeah just as still as a statue and then all of a sudden that animation and it's like i was like oh my god that looks so fucking good there's a girl i know that does uh, a statue girl downtown as a busker and it's kind of surreal because i know her and i've known i've seen her moving around all kinds of times um and smiling and doing human things but then to see her uh as a statue it is kind of surreal because she does this right She's that sort of person that they would have been able to hire to do this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They did it really, really right. All the statues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, some of the statues are definitely people in costumes. And so you can, you could, you know, as long as they stay relatively still, you could get away with it. But there's more than a few of them that are literally just people in makeup. Well, they're like, like beside he's mostly naked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And, and. I fucking love that. that the, the Jack the Ripper out of the painting sequence is so fucking good. And I forgot totally about that. And then when it starts happening, I, I just thought to myself, oh, my God, that's so amazing. I like that they use that to set up the idea that these paintings come to life thing, too. Because mm-hmm. if you wouldn't have had the Jack the Ripper fun moments ago, you wouldn't have been as sold, I don't think, on the ultimate painting come to life. Yes, yes, absolutely. And also there's these, you talked earlier about Lovecraft and shit. There's these, there's also things going on where it seems like tendrils or octopus-like things are just blackened. Like little baby old ones are yeah. coming out of these orifices created in people like it's, mm-hmm. it's like what the, something looks like a giant vagina birthing a fucking tent like a tentacle arm and mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. really crazy i don't know what robert england's dying by but it doesn't look very of it's, this world it, it's crazy it almost reminds me of a lot of the sequences in the void mm-hmm. where it, it, just like these whipping tentacles like there's nothing else to really to call them and but they seem to be alive, but like it doesn't seem to have any real consciousness to it. Like you can't even tell if this is like some kind of like sophisticated uh, animals that are getting birthed out of it, or if they are old ones, or it, like, what this really is. If this is the breaking of worlds between the uh, the realm of the other, the in between realms, are these baby jinn? Yeah, are are they baby jinn? Like yeah. the jinn himself. 
has tendrils they move mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not quite as rapidly but i mean these are things are just getting created so what are they but you see bodies hanging and like shit bursting out of people's necks and whipping around and like you in the very beginning of the movie there's like a monster that's like a big fucking hand almost like a, a big mouth and 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 then yeah whatever robert england vomits out that just seems to be increasing in size and and the more irrationally it seems to be constructed an orifice opens up and snakes seem to come out of that and there's already like these weird uh amoeba like uh, protuberances wiggling around it and robert england is just like what's happening you know <laughs> yeah and and so all this to say that in this moment of just pure chaos and death alex is faced with the jinn and he's surrounded by his uh troop of 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 now living statues now wouldn't you like to just take this whole scene of him you know sipping champagne walking through this mayhem that he's mm-hmm. created mm-hmm. and you just mute it and play putting on the ritz because the look <laughs> on the jinn's face is just like i am in seventh heaven finally i'm somewhere where i feel like i can be me where i can show my true face fit in have friends, conversation, <laughs> a little drink. <laughs> he looks really in his element here. He really, really does. Not only is he on the verge of getting everything that he wants, mm-hmm. and he knows that after uh, Raymond's wish, foolhardy wish, he has duplicated exactly what had happened last time, thousands of years ago, when he was on the cusp of getting what he wanted then, except now there are no wizards that are going to be bursting in in the last minute and confining him to a gem. There's no magic left in the world except for him. He stands before the world and nothing can stop him except one carefully crafted wish. God damn it. (laughs) She is forced to make a wish because as we were talking about earlier, as you had mentioned her sister is trapped within a painting, a painting in which um, he sets on fire within the painting. So this realm of the painting is burning. And we can hear, even though she's stationary, mm-hmm. she's still crying out for help. And I love this conversation. because, like, quite a good likeness, don't you think? <laughs> and it is. It does pull into that info dump we had way earlier in the film where we know that she saved her sister from their burning house and their parents mm-hmm. died and she's had nightmares and recurring scenes of her sister like at the door screaming to be helped and saved and let out and that's what this painting looks like it's a girl at like a window screaming to be let out because she's trapped in a painting and then there's flames behind her so it's like you know really tugging at her little heartstrings she does a good mm-hmm. job overacting at this it, uh, there are moments um it's kind of like Linda Day screaming bastards in pieces. That's what it reminds me of. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> um, so, uh, Tammy Lorne, uh, this is the actor that is p- uh, playing Alex. For the most part, I think she does a pretty good job. Oh, yeah. I love her Linda Hamilton style. Yeah. However, there are definitely sequences, mostly when she is having her... When she's w- witnessing the deaths of people via her connection to the jinn, that there are they are pretty dialed up. Yeah, and and I think that this last sequence, I mean, listen, the choices that she is making is supposed to be at a person's wit's end, and in that moment of panic 
and fear and desperation, she has a moment of clarity. She makes a wish. She remembers that Mickey Torelli caused the death of Ted Ramey, which broke the statue, which got the gem free, which brought the gem to her, then to her friend, and then set the gin free. And the green grass grew all around, all around, and the green grass grew all around. (laughs) Well, she makes a, a, a wish, a seemingly innocuous wish. I wish he was not drinking on the job two days ago. Wow. The genie is just like, how did you do that math? <laughs> um, this sets a sequence in of, of, uh, into events in which the djinn has to grant the wish, yep. but he's like struggling against having to grant that wish. because well, We've he- only seen ones before where Kane Hodder was like, I wish you would go away. And he's mm-hmm. like, God damn it, now I have to walk away. But yeah, he's uh, foiled. Foiled again. And he fucking gets sucked back into that crystal. And then it may as well have all been a dream. Although Alex definitely seems to retain memory of what had happened. Do you think so? I think that she does because I think... And hear me out. Yes, I shall. The reason why I think that she retains memory of what had happened was because of the fact that she decides to go on a date with her friend and it's her his uh, her idea well she also looks kind of on the fence last time they interact while he was alive she was on the fence but i think seeing his body get zipped up in that sack and carted away made her realize that perhaps he was worth taking a chance on and 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 sometimes people have that regret where somebody becomes unavailable when they had asked you out and you say no and then they start dating somebody else and you're like, ah, oh, fuck, now they're not available and I kind of want to do that. Or sometimes like you know, someone dies and you never get to do something with them that you always thought you would or say something to them, etc. So I think that even subconsciously she might have this lingering feeling to tip her off that fence. I would say subconsciously. I agree with that a little more readily. Because I was kind of, uh, I don't know what to believe. Does she remember all of this? Does she not remember all of this? She shouldn't remember any of this. Mm-hmm. She shouldn't. But she also, um, the conversation between them did happen at the tennis court. Because she still had his hat. Yes. So No, I- she pulled it out of his drawer. She pulled it out of his drawer. So now what? So the conversation of the tennis court never happened. So he never made a big ditch. He probably had asked her out before, though. Oh, probably. Because I think he worded it at the beginning, something like, how come you never let me take you out? Mm-hmm. So he must have. But, or maybe, you know, she could just tell he would have. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, generally speaking, people are aware when another person likes them. I'm usually aware when someone has a thing for me. I'm like, mm, I feel like they have a thing for me. I don't uh, know. There's a saying about writers. It's like, if, if, you're, if you like a, a writer, they will not know until you're in bed with them. And even then, they like, won't quite get it. <laughs> you like me, right? Yeah. Man, I've definitely had sex with people and then not been convinced that they actually liked me. I was like, you know, people have sex for all kinds of reasons. 
I've seen people, you know, I've seen a, a classmate uh, spend every waking moment basically obsessed with a, a female. And it was it was almost comical in a way, very Charlie Brown, very Charlie Brown kind of thing. This is the little redhead girl. Yeah, and she didn't know. She had no idea, no idea that this guy was interested whatsoever. To the point that she didn't bother to mention she had a boyfriend. He was devastated when he found out, but like she didn't get it. She didn't. He was just very friendly. But yeah, some people just don't get it. But then some people do. Like Alex, and I think that that they've been friends for so long and playing sports and stuff, like not quite intimate, I guess, but it is a closeness. So mm-hmm. she probably would have got some signals. It's weird to me that they're not that intimate yet. She draws the line at dinner and a movie because I've gone to dinners and, and movies with lots of people. Exactly. I've gone to the I've I've gone to, uh, to the movies with you. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, exactly. Like, and I'm not concerned. Like, what a romantic evening I just had with Lydia. I don't. <laughs> That doesn't. That does not make any sense to me. She seems to be fine. At the beginning of the film, she says, "Well, how about a ball game and then a hot dog or whatever." But to me, like but that's well, a date too. Yeah, like like here's the thing: if you're dating, then it's a date. If you're not dating, then it's just hanging out. You know what I mean? Like, like yeah. I don't know. To me, that seems like sort of a, a bunch of artifice dropped on top of like wordplay, where you're just like, what, like. Why do you draw the distinction of of like a, a ball game and a fucking hot dog versus dinner and a movie? It's about what's allowed and not allowed as dictated by a female. Mm. And I'm not pulling like an anti-feminist thing here necessarily. It's mm. just that's what it is. They're kowtowing to this is a, a hangdog dude that just wants to get some. Hangdog. <laughs> well, he is. He's uh. got a lisp. He's a little Could hound. Have a little bit. He almost, he almost like instead of like speeding away in his fucking uh, convertible, he should have just like kicked the dirt. Oh shucks! Yeah, yeah. F- like fumbling with his hat. Oh gee whiz! I sure would like to take you to the sock hop there, Alexandria, if you didn't find it in your heart. Not today, buddy. I'm too busy. I got a basketball game to coach and a billion other things to do, and I might even hit you up for a big favor later with that gem. I gotta gemologize. Oh. Shucks, Alexandra, I thought I'd pick you some daisies, wrap them in a newspaper. <laughs> daisies? And what kind of cheap bitch do you think I am? Yeah. <laughs> that's what they're, what they're doing. Yeah, I suppose that's what they're doing. So I, let's say, let's say then, you're right, because they, you know what? If she had like full cognitive knowledge about what was happening, they probably would have a sequence was like don't you remember what happened or or she would look at him and be like you're all right like she would give him like a big hug yeah so I, i'm i'm gonna say subconsciously she knows that something has happened and whatever she feels relief to see her friend or a, or a newfound appreciation for him or maybe the fact that he never did ask they didn't have that tennis yeah. match he never asked so she can feel like she's driving the bus so it's her idea so it's, it's her okay idea. Yeah, yeah that's what it could be I still like this Linda Hamilton knockoff. I do. I'm just tearing her a new one right now. Uh, anyway. Lori so. Hamilton. Lori Hamilton. <laughs> Lori Spamilton. Spamilton. She'll spam you with freakouts. But that's Wishmaster. And then we cut to the, the, the statue safely in uh, Raymond Balmont's possession. No one's been killed. And good news. 
Our Jin is just sitting in the crystal. He seems to have full knowledge because he's like, Mah. yeah, yeah, he must, he must. Uh, you would think that he'd be pouting though, not like laughing, but like I guess that's your setup in a way. But it's really not because it is to me at this point in time a standalone story with a not even that ambiguous of an ending. True, true, Except true. That he's laughing. Yeah, I mean, listen from from a from a purely narrative standpoint. That statue is going to sit in Raymond Belmont's uh, or Beaumont's uh, Beaumont is going to keep saying Belmont because he's like fucking <laughs> like Simon. No, I, he keeps sitting. He's going to that is going to sit in Robert England's collection until he dies. And then there'll be an estate sale and then another collector will buy it. And then that statue will sit in someone else's uh, collection and so on and so on and maybe one day it'll end up at a museum or whatever but I mean the idea to think that this thing will ever it could naturally break it could naturally crumble apart and a stone and the gem will be released but how hundreds of years thousands of years like who knows how long that would take mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so then it would turn into like the red violin mm. wonderful no I had a lot of fun with this I did not only because of my otherworldly stoic and my Lyndall Hamilton and my little tiny long haired Barney Rubble. You know, it was just it was just good and the effects were really, really good and the story's pretty tight, even though the little tiny holes we could poke in it. Like it is a fun mythical adventure of a horror film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well I'm glad you liked it. What do we got next for him? Coming up next we have magic. So if you like Anthony Hopkins and you like puppets, then have I Got the movie for you. I kind of wish that we'd not done Pin before, so we could do Pin right after. But hey, whatever. We did Dead Silence before, too. So we're all out of fucking dull and puppet movies. and So I don't know what we're going to do after Magic. Mm-hmm. But you might said, as well with you, the... Oh, go ahead. Might as well with the finishing up of a little Magic-themed little stretch that we've done here. After Leprechaun, Wishmaster, Magic, then what? I don't know. You had said that you wanted to do something modern. So maybe we should be looking at some ultra bleeding edge horror. Oh, I mean, one of the films that I really wanted to get into was The Visit, um, an M. Night Shyamalan film. Because we've never really dipped into the waters of Shyamalan. No, I'd love to talk about I'd love to talk about uh, M Night Shyamalan. I got some things to say about that dude. So there's no real thread between magic and the visit, but I mean, so it's a smash cut. We're gonna smash cut, smash cut to fucking the visit <laughs> or something. We'll see, we'll see. And we're gonna smash cut to credits. I'm Wes Knight, and I'm Typical Lydia, and you've been listening to Dead Air. <laughs>